Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible at hand, uh, let's get it out and we'll open to the Gospel of Luke. If you need a Bible, there are extras in the back. And uh, we're all about the Bible, God's Word. What a privilege to be able to read and know these things. Uh, even to have a copy of the Bible on your phone or on a tablet digitally. Those uh, versions have some strengths and some weaknesses, but let's look together at God's Word and turn to chapter 4. And as we do, I'll welcome those who may be watching our live stream uh, from home or from anywhere. We'd love to have you join us uh, for worship as well as for the Word of God. And let us know how we can pray for you. Um, Contact the church. We'll be reading verses 31 through 37 as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Um, And here we see Luke telling us uh, uh, what he wants us to consider a, a, a tremendous miracle of Jesus and all that we can learn from that. Chapter 4, verse 31. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But when Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown himself thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. May God bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word, now and always. Amen. With the month of uh, October, you've probably seen some of your neighbors are pretty gung-ho to set out a certain type of, boy, can I even call it a lawn decoration? It's almost a lawn desecration. Uh, You'll find out I'm a little biased. People celebrating Halloween go to great lengths to put tombstones in their front yard or hang skeletons from the tree, or worse. And I don't know what this preoccupation with death is from what was once a a simple harvest festival and celebration with neighbors and the celebrating change. It's really become a celebration of death and and worse. I'm not going to talk anymore about that. Because actually, for me, the month of October... And for many Protestants, brings about our memory of the great Protestant Reformation. We most often associate that with October 31st, 1517, right? You know which person I'm going to mention? Martin Luther, a young converted monk, took his disputes, his contentions, his 95 theses of what was wrong about the the Church of Rome and, and what was right about the gospel, and he nailed it up for disputation in his college community, in his seminary setting. 
And the world quickly took notice as people printed that up and distributed it, and the Protestant Reformation was off and running. We do well to remember Martin Luther. We'll have more to say about him on October 30th when we get to Reformation Sunday. But I was thinking of one particular story in Luther's life that's a great introduction to what we're looking at today. It's the story of how Martin Luther tried to uh, battle the devil by throwing an ink well at him. You know, before we had ballpoint pens, you had a bottle of ink and you would put your uh, pen into the ink. It was after Luther's famous declaration at the Diet of Worms where he said, here I stand, I can do no other. Um, uh, He had to leave that event. And at that event, there were a lot of dignitaries, including Emperor Charles V. And because he disagreed with the Church of Rome, the emperor said he was an outlaw. And even though he had safe passage back to his seminary in Wittenberg, his protector, um, uh, Frederick, the elector of Germany, plotted to have Luther kidnapped and hidden in Wartburg Castle. And he was there for 10, 12 months. And he was in disguise, hidden in the castle. He used a different name while there. And while there, he began work on his translation into the common German language of the Bible. And that translation is still valued today. Anyways, while he's hiding in Wartburg Castle, he he told many stories about his battle with the devil, how the devil tried to interrupt his work and bother him, sometimes just a fly buzzing at his head and in his face, or as a large black dog, a couple of stories about that, or by making noise to keep him awake at night. Luther felt demonic attack. He normally defended himself by praying and by singing. Martin Luther loved to sing, wrote many hymns. Yet there's a famous story of how Luther once threw an inkwell at the devil. And today, if you visit Wartburg Castle, the tour guides are quick to show you a spot behind the stove where the inkwell hit the wall and left a stain. And periodically, they they brush it up so you can still see it. It is a tourist destination, number one tourist destination in Wartburg. Well, they, they tell that story because Luther had recorded in, in some of his voluminous writings that he had driven the devil away with ink. Did he really throw an inkwell? I have no doubt that he, he could have easily. That fits the persona. But most of us believe that He was thinking even higher than that, that with his translation of the Bible from Latin and Hebrew and Greek into German, that he um, uh, was fighting and driving the devil away with that translation written with ink. We don't advise throwing things at the devil, or if you think you're in a situation and you're being attacked, it's not a physical battle. We're explicitly told in scripture that the weapons of our spiritual warfare are different than physical weapons. And what we see today in Luke's gospel, Luke's first recorded miracle of Jesus, what he chose to present to us in his gospel is this exorcism of a demon out of a man in the midst of a synagogue's uh, setting. And it's followed by two more miracles, three miracles in 24 hours. 
one exorcism rebuking a fever of physical healing, and then another exorcism of an even larger pack of demons, all in Capernaum in 24 hours. Why does Luke go there? Of all the things to tell us first about Jesus using his miraculous signs and wonders, he focuses on this. Why is that? Because it's Luke's burden inspired by the Holy Spirit to show us the power and authority of Jesus. To deal with the evil spirits that have afflicted this world, part of the fallen world experience and reality. I'm very thankful that Luke highlights this because it's something we need to know to encourage us all the more to entrust ourselves to Jesus and not fear the evil that still lurks on planet Earth. Let's take a look at what's here in this short paragraph. First, under the heading, the authoritative teaching of Jesus, because that's how Luke opens the account. He gives some broad statements about what Jesus had been about. He left Nazareth. We saw that last time. They ran him out of town because he said he was the Messiah. And he went down to Capernaum. There's actually uh, six or 700 feet going downhill because Nazareth was up in the hills and uh, Capernaum was down by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually below sea level if you go to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's definitely a going down. And in this seaport, this market town, this significant place, Jesus did many miracles. And he was here And Luke says he was teaching them on the Sabbath. That was his ongoing habit. That's what he means by that. Jesus regularly tried to do ministry by explaining the scriptures and speaking to people in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And the reaction is recorded here. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. So two things. Number one, Jesus prioritized a ministry of the word. He didn't just come, as we so often boil it down, to die on the cross. But rather, he explains the things of God. He explains his mission and why it's necessary to lay down his life. He predicts that he will lay it down and take it up. He he does all this teaching. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's gospel emphasizes Jesus, the very word of God, comes and speaks and reveals. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the ultimate revelation of God, surpassing prophets of old. And Jesus was committed to a teaching, preaching ministry. And that always came first for Jesus. Here, this is what Luke says, excuse me, Mark says in chapter 1, verse 38, uh, as he was about to uh, be overwhelmed by healing and all that, he said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And we'll read that in Luke next week. Luke 4, 43 says the same thing. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Verse 43. He has a commitment to preaching. And we'll talk more about that when we get to verses 42 and 43. But notice the response to his words. They were astonished at his teaching. Wow. Well, why was that? 
Jesus was a little more flamboyant than anyone. No. He wasn't a charismatic fellow. He wasn't a G.K. Chesterton with uh, snappy little reposts verbally. He wasn't a William Shakespeare spitting long yarns. It tells us why they were astonished. Look at the Bible here. It says they were astonished at his teaching for, that's a giant hand saying this is the reason, his word possessed authority. Some of you may have had the experience of a father who, when he lowered his voice and used a certain tone, you got a little nervous. The authority of your father was speaking. That's perhaps our first exposure to this kind of experience. Or perhaps you remember the first time you heard a a Bible preacher hammering away with the word of God and, and it affected you. Imagine what these people felt and perceived as Jesus, the Son of God himself, took the words of Isaiah or the Old Testament and pressed them and gave them understanding. He did it with authority. That's what captured the attention and the awe of the people. The Greek word for authority, exousia, means power, Ability, energy, dominion, rightful authority to exercise that. He handled that word not tentatively, not offering IHMO or IMH in my humble opinion. He didn't have to tag his words. He spoke. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, You've heard this, but I tell you. You could read the Sermon on the Mount and pick up on the flavor of the things Jesus would teach. This is so fitting for the one who was described back up in verse 21 as the one who fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. He said in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did the scripture say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news. The Holy Spirit had joined with the person of Jesus in his incarnation, in his humanity. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and immersed in the Holy Spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit. He proclaimed good news. That all comes first, and the people were picking up on that, this authoritative teaching and preaching. And why, before we move on to the miracle, let me pause and say why, this is the plan for the spread of the gospel. Jesus had that mission. No, I can't just stay here and heal and teach. I have to go to other villages and preach and heal there. That's my mission. Getting the gospel out. Romans 1, interestingly enough today, the the verses that led to the conversion of Martin Luther. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 say this, as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. For in it, in the gospel, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This message that Jesus brings, that Jesus preached, that he taught, is the power of God for salvation. If you've ever asked, how do I get saved? How do I get rid of my guilt and my shame? How do I ever get right with God? How do I know God and find purpose and meaning in life? It begins with this message of Jesus. And so Jesus came to make the Father known, so he speaks of the gospel. And that's his preaching ministry. The signs and wonders Jesus did only attested to who he is and the validity of his message. When we finish the Gospel of Luke, Lord willing, maybe a year or more away, when we get to chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke, do you know what Jesus is going to say? Let me tell you. Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He said, I fulfill the scriptures. I've taught you. Here's understanding. Now go and proclaim this still further. Because the kingdom of God comes not simply by miracles and exorcisms, but by the preaching of the gospel and people hearing and believing. That's what this book is all about, helping us to see that in the person of Jesus, there's good news. But in our passage today, after Jesus had been teaching here, Luke chapter 4, after verse 32, verse 33 tells us about a specific event that happened one day in Capernaum. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He was most likely a Jew who was either a regular attender or member of that synagogue. He had been admitted. He didn't come barging in like a terrorist. He was there in the midst. And something happened and provoked uh, this unclean spirit that had come upon him, and this episode breaks out. He cried with a loud voice, ha, or that expression is hard to understand completely. Ha, it's an exclamation. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. When demons start talking, sometimes they slip into the plural because they hang out, hang out often together or they're speaking on behalf of all their evil comrades. Let's take a couple minutes and answer some questions about the reality of demons before we bring about a resolution here, because this passage in Luke has put that on the front burner. Let me try to be very simple and not complex and family-friendly. Um, what are demons? What are demons? Well, here's the more technical answer from J.I. Packer. They are created spiritual beings corrupt and hostile to God, both God and man. They are fallen angels serving the devil with real 
but limited powers. So you need to know a couple of things there. They were fallen angels. We're not going to trace that whole history. Lucifer, Satan, the devil himself was the leader of the pack, but other angels fell with him. They were created by God, much as angels are created. Spiritual beings, not necessarily with bodies, spiritual beings. So they're creatures, but they're fallen into sin. There's no repentance. There's no hope for demons, fallen angels. There's no gospel for them. They serve the devil. They inflict or exploit physical and mental maladies with their limited powers. And we should point out, I think it's a very helpful bit of information, there's a limited number of them. They don't recreate. There was a fixed number. They fall, and when they are destroyed or cast out, their number keeps diminishing. Praise God. In the Gospels, Jesus had authorized the 12 apostles and and even the, the 70 when he sent out teams of believers. He authorized them to exercise demons in his name. Because it was part of his mission not only to make the gospel known, but to do some mopping up of these evil beings who had rebelled against Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Demons can be beaten and defeated. We are told in James 4, verse 17, and you might, verse 7, you might want to underline the second part of that verse. It says simply, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible's truth to the Christian in the pew. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We'll say more about that protection in the end but these demons they're just creatures but they are real and we don't want to ignore that reality the bible speaks of them as real now we know that a lot of scholarship with its skeptical pen in hand comes at the bible and says all this talk about demons it's all really just ancient people didn't really understand mental illness when they saw it and that has such plausible Uh, connections with modern people because we like to think medical science can explain everything. Yes, there is mental illness. The Bible teaches that as well. But here, the Bible tells us this was not mental illness. And you know, who's the author of this gospel? Isn't it Luke the physician? Luke who had treated people. He was well known for his detail to physical realities, physical ailments, and to healings. He understood when Peter's uh, mother-in-law had a fever. He didn't say she was demon-possessed. So the author here, Dr. Luke, he knows better. And he rightly understands that this was a demon that spoke back and was using this man. Pastor Philip Ryken says, This man in the synagogue was under the personal domination of a fallen angel, a supernatural being who was trying to cause him spiritual and physical harm. And when it comes to this uh, mental illness question, a a scholar from the 1950s, uh, his commentaries is still a superb contribution. He has a difficult name, Norval Geldenhus, He rightly says that demon possession was not merely an ordinary form of mental disease, as some writers have alleged, but a special phenomenon which was particularly frequent during Jesus' earthly sojourn and thus was directly connected with his coming to destroy the powers of darkness. You see, Jesus came when the time was just ripe. 
And he entered into the front lines of a spiritual warfare that started in Genesis and will finally resolve in Revelation. This is the peak of demonic activity in the world. We understand. Because the Son of God himself had come in human flesh. So you see a lot of this in the Bible. You see Jesus wiping out whole swaths of demons in his ministry and in the ministry of his apostles and then things taper off. Because as the human population grew, the population of demons has diminished. It's very unlikely that we bump into demons when you try to conceptualize these things. But the Bible doesn't say this was uh, a normalness. It says this was a, a demon possession. But it's interesting, when we see the demons start to speak here, he doesn't like Jesus. Something really triggered him. It was Jesus ministering the word of God in authority. He knows who Jesus is, and he says that. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So let's ask the question, doesn't the demon here speak the truth? Why does Jesus want to silence him? Yes, he speaks the truth, but Jesus wants him silenced. We'll get to that in a minute. What truth had this demon spoken? He spoke amazingly powerful, truthful words. Jesus, the Holy One of God. Do you know what that means? He's not just saying, Jesus, you're holy, I'm not. He's not just using it as an adjective. He's using it as a title that in the Old Testament is used almost exclusively for God Almighty. If you do your Google search on the Holy One of Israel, it's the way men of old spoke of Jehovah. Isaiah 47 verse 4, Our Redeemer, the Lord Jehovah of hosts is his name. He is the Holy One of Israel. And yet the demon knows that Jesus is God's son, equal with God, and calls him the Holy One of Israel. The messianic use of the name for God. The demon doesn't even have to blink. He knows who Jesus is. And he knows why Jesus has come. That's why he's squirming. That's why he's reacting. That's why he wants to find out, have you come to destroy us? Maybe Jesus started to... You know, in the best of nonverbal communication, maybe he started nodding or smiling because that ministry was about to begin. And in his power, in the spirit of God, as part of his mission, he was going to get rid of this demon and silence him. The demon did speak truth, but as Dale Davis points out, It's a confession of truth, but it is not a confession of faith. We do well to remember, and we read it earlier when we read the temptation of Jesus, that even the devil can quote the Bible, not always accurately. In the mouth of demons, truth can be found. And I just have to pause here. And warn anyone hearing my voice that just because you can speak truth about Jesus does not mean that you are in a saving relationship with Jesus. That's profound for America where everybody presumes they're Christians because they they know the Bible story. They know the right Sunday school answers. So 
do demons. Do not presume that your knowledge is a saving evidence of the new birth. More about that later. So the demon speaks the truth, but Jesus wants him silent. Why? Well, there's several reasons why. And we don't have to know why. We just see Jesus wants him silent. We presume because even though he's speaking the truth, he is not worshiping Jesus. He's not respecting Jesus. Demons, like their master, are liars. And they will twist the truth. We saw that in the garden. You don't really want to have a conversation with a demon. You don't want to give them a platform in the middle of a synagogue. Jesus wants them quiet. And Jesus doesn't want the truth coming from his mouth. Jesus wants to continue teaching and making the truth known himself. So let's look at Jesus' reaction, the authority of Jesus over demons. Notice how this happens. The authority and power of Jesus comes by a mere word. There's no ritual here. There's no holy water. He doesn't have a a crucifix, for for sure. He doesn't have a cross made of gold. He doesn't have a, a hardwood stake to drive through the heart of a vampire. He doesn't have any of the gimmicks and rituals that the occult has drummed up for dealing with the supernatural. Because the theme of the paragraph today is the mere authority of Jesus to speak truth and to command creatures. With a word, this demon has to comply. The wind and the waves complied when Jesus would speak to them, be still. When he speaks to the paralysis in a man's legs and arms and says, be healed, the cells of the body obey. Jesus speaks to this creature and it must comply. Later on, we're taught, as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, not long ago, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We, Paul writes to the Corinthians, We Christians destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. But our weapons are not those of the world. The truth of God, the truth of God prevails. One word from Jesus and God's people are encouraged to use the words of Jesus. Pressing on. Jesus here displays his ministry is to destroy the devil and demons as he pursues our salvation. That's why this demon is so triggered. It knows why Jesus has come. The book of Hebrews is much of a scholarly commentary on the life and ministry of Jesus. If you want to understand that, read and study Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, it tells us one reason Jesus took on human flesh and blood and came into the world Hebrews 2 tells us uh, that through his death, he himself uh, might likewise partake of the same things. That through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. 
Later on in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus will say, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He preached the right relationship with God through the gospel, and he commands demons by that same authority. The mission of Jesus to destroy those. And we could go on and read Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 20 to see the victory of the Lamb. Time prohibits me from going into that, but just a verse or two from Revelation 5. Listen to the language of the celebration in heaven. It's a victory over the devil and all these demons. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Pictures of what is to come in heaven in glory Symbolic as they are, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus. The lamb who had been slain but is now standing, that's Jesus. Died, buried, and resurrected and ascended. And he's there at the victory. He can open every seal. He can declare every judgment. He can bring about uh, the final days on earth and the coming of the eternal world Believers with their God. It's the victory of the Lamb which will be complete. Part of that is a victory over these demons. So let me give these three important exhortations as we close the sermon this morning. First, regarding evil spirits, avoid two common errors. Regarding evil spirits, avoid these two common errors. In other words, you you can't go to either of these extremes. One extreme is underestimating or denying their existence. Yeah, that was the pre-modern age. They didn't understand static electricity. They didn't understand eclipses. They didn't understand, give me a break. They understood so much more without computers or smartphones or Google. Dr. Luke knew what he was seeing. He could tell the difference between a physical illness, a mental illness, and demon possession. So don't underestimate or deny the reality of evil spirits. That's why there's cartoonish portrayals of the devil as some some being dressed up in red and looks goofy and he's got a pitchfork running around. He wants that silly cartoon image to prevail. Because that just makes him mythological. He doesn't want to be outed as real. So don't underestimate. And you know what the other error is. Don't overestimate the presence and power of demons. Don't get so worked up. Creating a a frightened frenzy. Which will undermine your faith or the faith of others. As we have said. Their numbers are limited and diminishing. It is unlikely. It is rare. Say Bible scholars. For believers to encounter demons so don't underestimate don't overestimate just understand that it's a reality and understand the power and authority of Jesus over them first we need to trust the teaching of Jesus 
Avoid those extremes. Second application, trust the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said you must be born again by the Spirit of God to be a spiritual child of God. Jesus said, be my disciples. Learn from me. Learn the warnings and the promises. And then tell others. That's what it means to trust the authoritative teaching of Jesus. But understand that as you trust the teaching of Jesus, it will provoke conflict. When you try to tell others this is what the Bible says, some people are going to be provoked. And finally, trust the power of the Lord Jesus. Trust his teaching and trust his power. He is the good shepherd. He has a rod and staff to police us and protect us. Jesus has angels that attend to the needs of the church. The disciple of Jesus who lived the longest, we believe, was John. He was the youngest, most likely when he started out, didn't even have a beard, we think. And he lived the longest, dying in old age. One of his short letters, 1 John 4, he wrote to believers. He always called them little children. And he said this in 4.4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Did you hear that? If you are a Christian, you know Jesus. Jesus is yours. And he has given his Holy Spirit to indwell you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God. That's good news. To know Jesus, to love and serve Jesus and help others get to know this Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that is laid out in your word. The power and authority of Jesus. No mere man, the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And we thank you that he came. We're thankful that we have the Gospel of Luke to explain these things and to see his power. Nothing on heaven and earth can withstand the power of our Savior, our Lord, in what he desires to do. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you. Protect us and prosper us in serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.